Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project Podcast. So today I am here with Melanie Diesel, who is a keynote speaker, an award-winning branded content creator, and a lifelong storyteller on a mission to share the power of compelling, incredible content with others. Melanie is the founder and chief content officer of StoryFuel, which teaches marketers, publishers, creators, and companies of all sizes how to tell better brand stories. She is also the author of the Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. Hey, Melanie. Hi, Monica. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. So tell me, what has it been like to try to launch a book during the pandemic? Let's start there. <laughs> Launching a book during the pandemic, um, I don't recommend it as a marketing strategy. Oh. It was definitely definitely a bit of a challenge. So yeah, the book, the book came out in February, which was just before sort of the whole country lockdown. Uh, we had a few days in there, but ultimately we ended up having to, to cancel all the book signings, all the book launch events that were scheduled because it was just, it was already getting to be clear that was not going to be safe. And then of course we were all locked in uh, just to add a little bit of, a little bit of salt in the wound. Uh, you remember that period of time where Amazon was only shipping essential items and they oh, weren't shipping anything else? I do remember. Well, apparently my book is not an essential item. So what? if you... <laughs> If you ordered during that first or second week of launch, you might have had to wait six to eight weeks to get it. So that's not great for building momentum. But I think I've, I sort of reset my expectations that this is more of a marathon than a sprint. You know, it's been wonderful to see that the people who the book has reached, which it, it has reached people, you know, it's it's having the impact that it should. You know, it's it's reaching people, it's helping them, it's it's making them feel more confident in their storytelling abilities, and that's really what it's all about. And I think this marathon approach was really smart. So my book actually became a bestseller in the marketing category last week. So <gasps> congratulations six months after launch. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, that but, is so great. But you know, it, it was it was definitely a marathon. Like that's what you expect to happen the week of launch or, you know, right around the day of launch. That's where you you typically see that. But you know, we all had other priorities. And so it's uh, it's been an interesting experience to sort of shift those expectations and do what we can, you know? <laughs> And speaking of story, I mean, holy smokes, this whole thing has been quite a story in the human experience. Yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, and I think one thing that's been interesting for me and, and maybe some of your other listeners as well is I became a parent for the first time just before all of this happened. So our daughter was born in, in late 2019. And, you know, not long after, just she was only a few months old, you know, we all went into quarantine. And so it's been an interesting experience for, for us as parents, you know, not having access to, to daycare or, you know, being able to run to the doctors every time she has a rash and we're curious, you know, you only go for the most important things right now, you know, not being able to spend as much time with, with extended family just for safety reasons. And so that's, that's definitely been a, a major adjustment for us, not only the pandemic, but pandemic as a new parent, I think is like a, a very specific flavor of, of confusing. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm thinking like maybe that's the next book because I could, I can only imagine. Like I, I think of back when I was a new parent and how much I leaned on actually getting out of the house. It's how I felt normal. It's how I yeah. survived some of those early parenting months. You know, yeah. the, the grandparents, the visits, just that mm-hmm. was a huge, huge part of not feeling so isolated. And, and as I recall in my bathrobe constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I I look back on the last, I mean, she spent more than half of her life in quarantine. She doesn't play and she's an only child. She's the firstborn. So she doesn't have kids to play with. Uh, You know, she doesn't have other kids to learn from like she might have at daycare. And so it's been an interesting process as a parent too, because we're trying to figure out, well, how do we keep her from being spoiled when, you know, she has all of our attention all the time? Yeah. How do we keep her from, from having separation anxiety because she's not been away from us in eight months? You know, how do we keep her from being weary of new people when she's hardly exposed to new people? So it's just, it's, and those are questions that no one could really answer for you because pandemic parenting, there's there's not really a guide for that. <laughs> no, I mean, you, you're putting a whole new spin on it in terms of just becoming a new parent and all of these kind of unintended consequences or impacts to doing this early stage parenting during the pandemic. Yeah. And you guys, you guys recently moved on top of it all, correct? <laughs> we did. And, and I think part of that was on her account as well. So we had been living just outside New York City and in, in New Jersey across the river. And, you know, big part of that was proximity to the city it was really important for meetings. And, and I was very close to Newark Airport, which was great when I was traveling. But I think what we found is, and, and many people did, right, as soon as the lockdown happened, it became painfully obvious how unsustainable the size of of our apartment was. So we had around 600 square feet. And, uh, you know, that had been fine when we went to work and she went to daycare, right? It was just a place to sleep and a place to eat dinner. But it was not able to be a place for us where two adults could work from home and a baby had space to move around. And so it just became really obvious really quickly that like, if this is lasting any more than it already has, like, we've got to find a better solution. And once you realize you have to move your whole life, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you think, well, we're going to do this once. So where do we want to resettle? Like, let's, let's, let's make a big move because we're going to do it. So let's, let's go all in. And, and we discovered that when we made the list of all the things that were important to us, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, topped the list. It had all the things we wanted in terms of access to nature and, and space and the pace of life down here and the cost of living and, you know, weather. So, so we ended up in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and this is our new home where we're settling in and, and getting to know the land from afar as best we can. Wow, that's amazing. I love that you guys kind of made those decisions and just did it, went for it. And yeah. tell me this, what's your favorite part so far about Raleigh? You know, uh, we've been really lucky that the North Carolina Museum of Art is not too far. It's just a couple miles down the road from where we are. And obviously the museum itself is is still closed, but they have a wonderful giant outdoor sculpture park, mm. uh, sculpture garden. So it's so, I mean, it's huge and it, there's beautiful sculpture all around and it makes for a really nice place for us to get outside and feel safe, you know, to be able to go out there, be socially distant, have a picnic, play in the grass. Uh, there's so much space and it's it's nice to have that so close to home. You know, when I think about if we wanted to go to a park <laughs> in our in our previous apartment, we would have had to, you know, take an elevator to a shuttle bus to a subway <laughs> right. with a stroller to get to to get to something like that. So it is really nice to to have access to the outdoors because I think 
especially in, in crazy times like this, there's just something that's so peaceful and grounding about being in nature, even if it's just like a walk in your backyard. And so I think having that has been a major, a major boost for us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, it's really something that we're looking at too, only because, you know, our space, you know, and, and I feel almost guilty saying that. It's so funny after you, <laughs> after you told me you were living in the 600 square feet, but it's this idea of like, wow, how small the house seems with everybody at home. And the kids are doing virtual yeah. learning and my husband's now working and his office is now the bedroom, which I always joke, like, let's go to your right. office, honey, huh? Just kidding. <laughs> um, but I'd love, I was just going to say, you know, all of our homes where wherever we were living, they were designed to be homes. Like, like we said, place to sleep, place to have dinner, place to watch a movie with your family. They were not designed to also be a school and also be two office buildings, right? I mean, that that's some next level space planning that we were not <laughs> yes. intending when we set up, when we set up shops. So I think it makes sense that at least for what I'm seeing is a lot of people relocating or going back to their roots or, you know, moving, moving out of big cities. It's just, it's kind of helped you realize what's important about the space where you live and what an effect that can have on on your well-being and your stress levels. I think a lot of us are seeing the advantages of getting a little more space or at least space better suited to, you know, being inside all the time. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's really I think everybody's in a state of reevaluating on so many levels. I think it has, you know, all of this has turned the world upside down on its head and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I know it's uncomfortable. Uh, it certainly has been for me. I have to almost remind myself daily to just breathe. Like it's everything's okay, you know, and just really start mm-hmm. to pay attention to the things that I do appreciate on a day-to-day basis and know that some of these considerations are we're exploring them. Like we've started to look at like, well, so what what is on our wish list for for what we do want, you know? And so certain yeah. things come up like more space, perhaps a space with, you know, a location nearer to, you know, a community where we can just kind of go go out and walk and just another way to kind of live that we hadn't really thought about until now. So yeah. so it's really been forcing us to think differently and yeah, and it's it's forcing to kind of get back to really like our conversation. It's it's forcing me to tell myself a different story right now. Yeah. About kind of like what's happening in the world and why and what story do I want to focus on, which which kind of brings me back to asking you, how did how did your love of storytelling start? Well, I I always say I've been a storyteller since I was a kid. You know, one of the things my mom recently told me that she found a box in the attic that had my books. I'm doing air quotes. My my books <laughs> from when I was a kid. That one of my hobbies as a, as a young kid was making books. I would fold, you know, blank paper in half and write titles and fill it with stickers and drawings and things. And and so I've always been drawn to you know communication in that way. You know, I've always been a storyteller, I suppose. Um, and I studied journalism thinking that, you know, it was my invitation to tell other people's stories and and be sort of a conduit for those stories, you know, go collect information and and share it with others. But I found out pretty quickly that there uh, weren't as many jobs in that area as I had hoped. And, you know, I I joke that I I studied as an undergraduate, I studied investigative journalism. And then uh, I got my master's degree in arts and cultural criticism which, you know, as it turns out, are usually the first two teams that get cut when a newsroom downsizes, they cut the arts coverage and they cut the expensive investigative. So um, I needed to find somewhere else to, to put those skills to use. And I found that 
I could actually be of a lot of value on the marketing side, the marketing communications that people who had a sales message to share or, you know, it were personal branding that they needed to get that message out and they weren't, you know, hadn't been trained to tell that story. And I think one of the amazing things about the world we're living in right now is we are all content creators. We are all sharing our story. So, you, you know, if you're posting a photo on Instagram or sharing your thoughts on an article that you read on LinkedIn. I mean, all of that is content creation, texting your partner, like making your bitmoji, like whatever you're doing, like you're, you are creating content. And so there's a tremendous need for, you know, understanding how to tell those kinds of stories strategically, how to choose the right format, how to choose the right focus for your story. And, you know, most of us didn't, didn't have that. So it's been really my mission since, you know, I was at the Huffington Post. I did this work at the New York Times as their first editor of branded content. And then for the last, I guess, almost five years, I've been uh, running Story Fuel, where we work directly with clients through consulting or workshops. The the speaking that I mentioned, um, all of that is is really keeping with our mission to to teach people how to be more creative and, and confident in their storytelling and content creation. I love that. I too have always been a huge fan of stories. It makes me curious. What were do you remember some of the stories that you loved growing up? Oh my goodness. So I mean, one of the things that has been important for me with my daughter is is for us to do a lot of reading and have a lot of books at home because that was something my mom stressed a lot for us. We would always read before bed. It was like that was how we would wind down and we would take turns. You know, my my younger sister would read, you know, a more early reader book and then I would read out loud from one of my books and then my mom would read out loud from something too. So it was really a shared experience for us at bedtime. You know, so I, I, gosh, there's so many. I mean, I remember reading Robinson Crusoe uh, which was like a one that really stuck with us. We read that one a couple times. I, I, I was just actually going to make a really bad joke thinking about like how many of us might have to learn those life survival skills, you know, and get back yeah. to those days. But there was something fascinating about that, those stories, right? It was just like, yeah. there was something exciting about those. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I've always loved about it is it's a window into a world that you're not living in, in mm-hmm. most cases. Mm-hmm. And and that's true, even when it's nonfiction, it's not just fiction. I mean, it, that's, of course, true if you're reading, you know, fantasy or historical fiction or something, you know, Harry Potter, J.R.R. Tolkien, those kinds of things. But it's just as much true when you're reading, you know, a biography of someone that you don't know or, or you know, didn't live their life. It's just as true when you're reading some sort of self-help or business or improvement book about a process that you don't yet know how to do or, you know, a way of living that you haven't yet adopted. It's a way to help you visualize and experience things that, that you haven't yet. And that can be so transformative. And I think that's really why I feel like it's such a powerful tool that for so many marketers who are, you know, the folks I'm usually working with, they think of it only as a way to alert people about a new product or a new sale or, you know, some other, you know, very transactional item. But it can actually be so much more powerful when they're telling transformative stories about the lives they're changing or the customers they've saved in in certain ways or, you know, the passion behind that product creation. I think it's just it's it's an 
real missed opportunity if you're not telling those kinds of stories. Right. And, and I mean, when I think about the just marketers aside, right, I, I, and I think about just the human story and what you said earlier about like, the, to some level, we're all content creators, we're all kind of like, really using so many different formats to tell our story, which is kind of what you talk about, you talk about this idea of focus and format. So tell us a little more about that. Absolutely. So every content piece that you've either created or consumed was made up of two things. It had a focus in that it was about something and it was told through a certain perspective or and it had a format. It came to life in a certain way. So what you are all listening to right now is an example of people focused content. So it's, you know, it's a conversation between the two of us and we're talking about our experiences as people and it's audio content. You're, you're listening to it uh, with your ears and, and not reading it with your eyes. Right. So, you know, if we realize that, that that's sort of the formula for all content, that it, it has a focus and it has a format, then it gives us a way to not only, you know, talk about the content that we see and understand why we do and don't like something or why we are or are not drawn to something, but it makes the process of coming up with that content, if you're in that business, much, much easier. Instead of sitting down and saying, oh, I need to, I need to come up with some content, you know, to, to fill the void uh, or, or fill the blog or whatever the case may be for you, you can actually think, well, what should, what should my content focus on today? And then what format is best to tell that story? It really gives you more of a process to help you, you know, better articulate the, the stories that you have in a way that's going to make sense for the platforms where you're sharing them. You know, I often, I teach kind of a social media training. And one of the, one of the things I've been teaching recently is kind of how to use social media as a platform for social change. And what you just said makes me think a lot about how many people really want to make a difference. And they're yeah. always kind of on social media. Like these are people who are always using social media. And I don't think a lot of us realize what a powerful tool it can be if we were to start to look at, you know, the way that we create or the story that we want to tell through this lens of story fuel. Like there's so yeah. many of us that want to tell a story about a different kind of America, right? Or a yeah. different kind of future that we co want to co-create. And it's like, I it just made me kind of think about all of the possibilities that are really at our fingertips if we were to kind of look at, you know, just our daily interaction as on social media as a powerful opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that's that's really freeing when you think about it is that, you know, there's never been a better time for you to experiment and, and try these things if it's something you haven't done before. You know, everyone in your audience is experiencing the same thing we are right now, which is that we're not in our normal place with our normal resources, it, acting in our normal way, right? Everyone's sort of working under altered conditions. So there's a lot more empathy right now. And so if you have been wanting to experiment, to try things, now is the time. Like the, your learning curve is is here. You know, this is this is the chance to to try things, to have some space to experiment. But yeah, I mean, I think it really can be so powerful if you if you think of it that way. And I think that is the difference in many ways. You know, from a marketing perspective, or if you're thinking about sales or or building your personal brand, if you think of social media as a call to action or an invitation, sometimes that can. I mean, your audience feels that they know that it's transactional. That you're just sharing a link because you want them to click it, or you're just sharing a link because you want them to buy. And I think if you use that opportunity 
to share stories. Instead, you can help make them feel something and that's going to drive them to, to want to take action, right? It's, it's the feelings that drive a lot of those decisions. And so, you know, the best way to, to help them feel something is to, to share the story that's going to make them feel that emotion. It's so true. I mean, that is such the element, isn't it? It's like, it's like, make me feel something that's kind of oftentimes missing from a lot of the marketing that's out there. And it's this missed opportunity, again, to really, I think, connect to meet people where they are and really take them on a journey and give them a perspective or a storyline that they get to experience outside of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's also, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who can share different frameworks for how to structure those stories. Because that's a, a follow-up question that we'll get a lot of times is, okay, well, you know, what, uh, in what order should I tell the story or, you know, which, where should I start kind of thing? And there are, you know, if you look out the, look for the book Stories That Stick by Kendra Hall. Um, you know, she does a great job of talking about the elements of a story. You can also look to Story Brand by Donald Miller, which helps you tell sort of your holistic who am I as a brand story? But yeah, I mean, a lot of it just comes down to really thinking critically about the value you're trying to bring. And that's a little bit different. That's that's a, a change in perspective. I think for so many of us, we're thinking about the value we're trying to bring to ourselves. Why do I want to post this? What do I hope people reply to this? How do What impression does this give about me? And we have to remember that we need to put our audience at the center if we truly want to get that emotional reaction from them, it needs to be content that they need, content that has some value for them, content that makes them feel something. And that, that is sometimes very different than what may make us feel something or what, may, what we may want to share. So that audience-centric approach is, I think, a, a really big differentiator when it comes to creating something that, that's going to be valued and engaged with. So Melanie, can you share with us maybe a couple of examples of how you've seen this play out, like just in terms of maybe a way that you have created some story using your your formula to, you know, help somebody or a brand that hasn't had that opportunity before to and created that kind of impact? So I think one of the really fun parts of the work that I do is that I get to work with amazing, awesome brands across a a wide variety of industries. One of the the bummer parts of what I do is that oftentimes that work is under NDA. And so I'm not able to share some of the the coolest stuff that we do because they, you know, they're still working through how they're bringing that stuff to life and they want to maintain, you know, credit and control over how that happens. So in the absence of a specific recent brand example, um, I can share uh, an example of a piece that I did when I was at the New York Times that you know follows the same principle. So Netflix came to us at the C Brand Studio, the brand content team, and they were launching the second season of Orange Is the New Black. Are you familiar uh, with that show? The show yes. in the prison. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So they came to us. Um, and they said, look, you know, the show is fun and we have a very young audience that likes the characters and they're sort of, you know, engaged in the storyline, but we want to attract a different audience. We want to reach people who are concerned about the social issues that the show addresses, right? So people who care about, you know, over-incarceration and, you know, uh, solitary confinement and some of these, some of these more social issues that the show touches on. And we know we need to take a different approach to reach someone in that way. So that was our task. How do we tell a story that uh, would attract that kind of audience on the New York Times website and, and get them interested in the themes of the show? So 
what we put together, you know, we decided to focus on, on a number of different things. So we combined several focuses. We focused first on the people. So I interviewed tons of, you know, current and former inmates, prison reform workers, uh, real ones, not characters in the show, but, but out in the real world, part of the American prison system, you know, psychologists, sociologists, I talked to so many people to get their perspective on, on what was wrong or different about the, the women's prison system specifically. Then we focused on the data. So I went and spent a ton of time looking through government data, uh, seeing, you know, what are women being convicted of that's getting them in prison? How often are they getting out versus, you know, ending up back in prison? Uh, what's the average sentence? You know, all of those, those things really crunching the numbers, you know, drawing on that investigative reporting background uh, to focus on the data and tell that story through the lens of data. And then how we brought it to life. Uh, again, we chose multiple formats. So uh, it was primarily a written piece. So I wrote, you know, a, a long form investigative piece about what it's like to be a woman in the American prison system, like really diving into the the real experience. We also had infographics. So some of that data that I talked about was pretty dense. So we created some great graphics to let people see it. Um, we had a three part video in there so that these women could share their story. You know, the, the, the women that we interviewed, we wanted them to be able to, to share their story in their own voice. And then we also had audio clips in there so that you could listen to some of my phone interviews, the ones that didn't have video, you could still hear some of those quotes in their own voice. So, you know, that was really, obviously, we sort of threw, you know, they had, a, they had a sizable budget. So we were able to do a lot of really cool things with that. But it was a good example of us figuring out what's the best way to tell this story, you know, and how do we, what should we focus on to help convince our audience that this is important. And we knew that being that they were emotional, but also skeptical, we wanted to provide those people focused stories, you know, share the individual people who had been affected by this system, and then share the data that backs up why it's such a big problem. And then of course, just providing as many formats as possible, knowing that some people are more visual learners, some are more auditory, you know, the, the similar example I give is like, for all of us, say you're going to have, it's not in a non COVID year, say you're going to have a party, you probably know that Certain people on your list, uh, you're going to send them an invitation in the mail. They're going to listen to exactly what you said and send you back an RSVP. Some people, you know, you're going to have to send them a Facebook invite because that's the only thing they're going to look at. There's probably a few relatives that aren't on Facebook and don't do emails. So you just need to call them on the phone and tell them, right? We understand that sometimes the same message needs to be delivered in different ways to be more effective. It's so, so true. And that's such a valid point. It's, it's this, you're demystifying kind of like, again, the whole process, right? It's like this idea of being able to take that same message and deliver it in multiple formats. Yeah. So I'm curious what, like when you look at the landscape and uh, you know what, before I say that, I want to say this. It's so true what you said. I was just thinking about in some ways such a fast, we're in, we live in such a fascinating time, not only COVID, but of course, how the transfer of information and all of these different formats we're able to consume in, it's, it's really, I know that it's challenging for a lot of people because they're not, you know, there's a lot of distraction. But I think too, as somebody who can raise her hand and say, I probably would have been labeled ADD as a child in that I don't think that I was that kid that was well suited to just sit in a class and hear the lesson and then be able to kind of regurgitate and take tests in the way that showed how smart I was. You know, that like these days, I feel like there's so many formats to choose that help me discover that 
there's a way that I learn that is very valid, but it's it's more visual. And I just I don't think that we so many of us had access to to understanding maybe that it's not a measure of our intelligence, <laughs> that there's yeah. multiple formats that I think that we really need to think about when we're telling a story and how to reach and and get different listeners based on their, you know, learning style, how they're going to engage and, you know, really participate. Yeah, well, and I think the other thing that's important is, is sometimes it's just a matter of your situation. So I have, you know, historically, I've been a voracious reader, I love to read, I have a massive book collection, like I, I couldn't let them go, even when we moved in a pandemic, I will tell you that I have not read an actual physical book start to finish since my child was born, because I can no longer easily access that format. It's very difficult for me to, you know, when she's running all over or putting God knows what in her mouth or something to like focus on a book. What I have done though, is listen to even more audiobooks than I would normally mm-hmm. read in a regular year. So, you know, our format preferences, they change based on our situation, based on our finances, based on, you know, the technology we have at our disposal. You know, you might take a book with you to the beach, even if you're normally an audiobook listener, right? So I think there's there's a lot of room and a lot of benefit to creating content in multiple formats, at least to experiment, just to see what connects with your audience. What do they love most? What do they react most strongly to? Uh, and it can be a learning experience about yourself, you know, stretching yourself to tell stories in new formats is it can be a really fun, creative challenge. Yeah, it sure can. And so if if you were to tell us a little bit more about like your favorite platform that you use, I think you said something earlier too about really enjoying kind of TikTok, which surprised me. Yeah. I, I wondered if you could talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, TikTok is, I have been fully obsessed for the last month or so. Um, and I think a big part of it is for me, it's like, it's like an experiment. I'm decoding. I want to figure out what works on TikTok and understand, you know, the trends, the, the insights that I can share with my clients and, and other folks I'm working with. Uh, I haven't done much in the way of creating content because I don't have a strategy, right? My audience uh, of brand decision makers or folks working on personal branding who need content strategy help, they're not there. So I'm not dedicating a lot of time to creating content for that platform. But it's important for me to to know, you know, what's happening there and what's working. And I think the thing that's so incredible about it is you look at these, I mean, I'll call them kids, but you know, the teens, you know, <laughs> preteens, you know, high school students, college students who are, you know, they're doing incredible special effects work. They're doing incredible makeup work. They're doing amazing video editing. They're creating music. I mean, the creativity and the skills and the technology that these these kids are using, learning how to use at such a young age. I mean, what an opportunity that is. We have an entire generation that is going to graduate into the world, able to do video editing, able to do sound mixing. I mean, what a what a blessing that this platform has democratized all those skills, you know, even in a limited capacity to give them experience in playing with those kinds of tools. You know, I think that's a a fun opportunity. I had never been given those kinds of opportunities or exposed to those kinds of those things when, when I was that age. And so I never would have known that that was a career I could go into. But I think we may see, you know, a, a spike in interest in that kind of digital production work because people are, are getting a taste of it. It's so true. I mean, I, I look at my kids and I'm often amazed at 
what they're capable of producing. And then, of course, whenever I get stuck, I'm, I'm asking them, right? There's kind of this reverse mentorship happening with my children, which is so fascinating. You know, no longer am I just asking them to please turn the TV on. I don't know how this damn remote works, but <laughs> I'm also, you know, trying to figure out how to edit and they just seem to know it all, right? It just seems very intuitive for them. But I know that so much of that comes from kind of hanging out together. It's how they're consuming so much, I think, information at this point. But they're yeah. also, it, they're not just consumers. They're, as you're saying, you know, really content creators. And I think that that, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what that means for the future of these generations to come. It's it's really fascinating. Well, I think we're realizing slowly that content creation, and even if we don't call it that, is just, it's becoming an even bigger part of our lives. And I think the fact that so many of us have had to shift to working from home and become essentially virtual event production managers uh, over the last few weeks and, and months is testament to that. You know, we're we're all learning how to communicate in new ways and, and it's forcing us to have different skills and operate in different ways. And I think obviously there's a lot to be grieved, you know, a lot that has been lost and, and changed over the course of the last few months. But I think hopefully if we're if we're looking to to find something positive to take away from it, one of those things may be that we're we're learning new skills, we're learning new coping mechanisms, and all of that can be helpful for us in the long term. You know, I think hopefully for those of us who are blessed enough to come out healthy and, and financially stable after all of this, we hopefully will feel stronger for it because of, you know, these types of experiences that we're having along the way. That, that's my hope anyway. I mean, I hope so as well. It's it's very true. I think it's really challenged so many of us to, just in terms of our identities. You know, and I, I know that that's something that you're really experiencing on multiple levels. But I think as women, it's true that we can often tend to get our identity wrapped up or our sense of worth wrapped into are we married? Do we have a child? You know, do we have a career? And it's, yeah. it's really interesting how I'm seeing a lot of different women kind of grapple with this identity issue. And I think that there's a lot to be said just for being in the inquiry. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely something that I've struggled with, admittedly. I mean, I, when I, when I was first pregnant, I was dealing with you know, wrapping myself, wrapping my head around that whole new identity of, of being pregnant. I mean, there's a weird, a weird thing that happens when you're pregnant is that like everyone, strangers suddenly feel like they're entitled to know your personal health information. They want to mm. know how far along you are and how you're, you know, all these details, the number of people who told me that they knew what sex my baby was based on some physical feature that they had no right to comment on, um, you know, was like next level, right? I mean, you, all of a sudden you, you who you are and your boundaries and your sense of self are, are very different. And you add into that the bonus things of like you're suddenly like and don't like food that you used to not like or like, right? Everything is is opposite. And, you know, you're wearing different clothes than you used to before. And it, I mean, it's a very jarring experience. And then you get to the point uh, after all that hard work, you know, you you have your baby and then, you know, all of a sudden it becomes your primary identity. You know, again, if we're blessed enough to get to have any maternity leave to stay home with our child, we're now being pulled away from the work that we've identified so closely with. And I know for me, I, I identified as a speaker. I was mostly doing training and presentations and, and keynotes at that point. And so I was thinking, well, 
if I'm home and, and I haven't spoken in a few months, am I still a speaker? I mean, who am I? What do I do? <laughs> right, you know? right. So, you know, and that was little did I know that was good preparation for uh, for the, the forthcoming pandemic. But, you know, it, I think it, it can be an incredibly jarring experience. And I think for many people, I imagine that the, the pandemic is giving them a, a similar experience. You know, when our the way we work has changed, the way we engage with our family has changed. You know, we're not traveling. A lot of the, the hobbies or or other ways we identified, you know, if you identified yourself by, you know, I'm someone who goes to the gym or does CrossFit or does yoga, that's, that's may have been taken from you. You know, I'm a traveler or a foodie. Well, you may not have that right now. So I think there's a lot of people I imagine are, are having similar struggles in, in realizing that it's different when you're just left with, you know, yourself and your thoughts at home. It sure is. And, um, you know, it, it also really makes me think about just women's stories in general and how important it is for us to be telling our stories and finding our voices and, you know, how Story Fuel can really probably help women so much in that way. You talk a lot about deciding why to create content in general yeah. and really leading people through a process. But, you know, it's like we hear so much about history and it seems so easy for us to listen to and consume the stories of men, but it's making me realize how vitally important it is for women to share our stories so that we really know that we're not alone in so many of these very, we need to normalize so much of this. But now with the pandemic where nothing feels normal, we need to kind <laughs> of, we need to really yeah. be talking about some of the the crises i think these identity crises we're f we're f we're finding ourselves in because there's there's a way that i think in in sharing these stories that we really are able to find our our people our tribe and that's that's the true value of this storytelling is we're able to find people that can say me too and and that's such a wonderful thing to hear particularly when that is is about struggle right because i think especially as women, we have so much pressure on ourselves to, to have it all, to figure it all out, to, to do it with grace, uh, you know, to never complain and never frown. Uh, and so there, you can feel when something isn't going right, like you can feel like something is wrong with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I, I certainly dealt with, you know, especially like I said, you know, early, early parenthood amidst the pandemic, is is challenging. And I was doing that while also moving across the country while also dealing with a business that had previously relied on in person events and trying to figure out what the next step for that was. And, you know, I struggled. I mean, there were a lot of days where I felt like I'm so busy, and I am so tired. And yet I got nothing done. Like what happened to my day? <laughs> you know, when you see someone else's curated life on Instagram, or you only hear the success stories, because we're afraid to be vulnerable and share those struggles. I mean, it makes the problem worse. Because if you assume, well, something's wrong with me, I'm the only one who can't figure this out. Well, then the last thing you're going to do is share because you don't want people to know there's something wrong with you that you you can't figure it out, right? You feel insecure about that. So we're all just running around thinking that we're the only ones who don't have it figured out and afraid to share that fact. And how much better would it be? How much easier would it be if we could just support each other through the chaos? And so, I mean, I try to as often as I can sort of have radical honesty and, and radical transparency about these experiences, whether it's, it's motherhood or, or entrepreneurship. I mean, I think if, if I'm not giving people the full picture, then, then in essence, I feel like I'm lying and, uh, and I, I'm always in pursuit of truth. So. 
Yeah, well, me too. And so how about this? How many people who start working with you, the first thing they say is, I don't, I don't know how to come up with ideas. <laughs> a lot of them. I think it isn't always so direct. I think a lot of times people think I'm not creative is, is sort yes. of like where it hides or like, oh, I'm not a creative type. You know, I'm not, that's not really me. You know, I'm right, right. I'm not person. creative. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they feel like that some sort of elite skill that they were not given, you know, in the handing out of talents, right? They think it, that, that it skipped them, it skipped the generation or, you know, whatever the case may be. They think that they they don't have that capability and it just, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I think there's a, a wealth of information out there that shows that we are all creative, especially as kids. And we're sort of conditioned out of that because we're taught there's right and wrong answers and you don't want the wrong ones, you want the right ones. And so you see those kinds of creative behaviors and, and creative confidence, you know, they, they dissipate over time. And so we all have that. We've just been conditioned to hide it. And so our task is really, how do we uncover it? And that's a lot of the work that we're doing with our, our brand clients, with our, you know, our coaching clients on the, on the personal brand side um, is really helping them sort of unlearn that they're not creative and then put some process around creativity so that they can activate it whenever they need it. Well, and that's what I loved so much was, you know, as I not only went through the book, but then the workbook, there were so many spaces, you know, where you had created kind of this framework, and then the opportunity for the brainstorming, and the idea creating. Yeah, it's like this idea of like, even you call them multipliers. Mm -hmm. So talk more about that. Yeah. So multipliers, which is uh, sort of like a, a secret section in the back of the book there, you know, once we cover the focuses and formats, it gives you, I mean, I, I like to call it a superpower, but this ability to turn any one successful content idea into more. So whether that's making it a series or adapting it based on different criteria, the whole goal there is to say when we do something and it works well. So, you know, for you, if that means you post something on Instagram and it gets a lot of comments or, you know, you post a blog post and it gets a lot of shares, whatever that measure of success is for you, when it works well, instead of patting yourself on the back and and starting from scratch the next day, how do we take what we learned about what works from that and adapt it in different ways to to continue to see that same success. So it gives a a list of a couple different ways you can do that. And also, you know, some questions you can ask to help figure out what's the the best way to move forward when when you have one of those successes that you want to multiply. It makes me think of how many women I know personally that do, they have brilliant ideas. And there's this way that they like shoot them down before they even kind of like get them out on paper and start to like look at all of these different ways that they can tell that story and then use these different formats. Because one of the things that I think we're all discovering is that there's so many tools that are so user-friendly now that give us the capability to tell our story in a powerful way. And it's funny because so many people can think like, oh, my story, you know, it's, it's not a an important story. And it's like, who says that it's not an important story? I think as we start to put little bite-sized pieces of our story out there, and we start to see that resonance that you're talking about, that's when it gives us starts to give us these clues. It's almost like as women are sitting in a in a small circle, and somebody shares their idea, and everybody's eyes light up like, yeah, oh, that would be amazing. But you don't, I don't see those women, a lot of women move forward with the confidence that they can potentially tell that story. And what I love about your work is it really gives women and men a framework from which to kind of grow that idea. 
Yeah. And, and that was really the goal. I mean, I think I, I shared a bit of that in the beginning, but my, my focus has always been on education and how can I, how can I teach and, and get as many people feeling confident in their ability to share a story through content, whatever way they choose, you know, I feel really blessed to have had the education I did and, and learn how to tell stories in that way. And I feel like I have a duty uh, to demystify that. And it's not something that's super special, right? It's it's something we can all do. But again, I think we are, we really are conditioned out of it. And I think it's important to acknowledge that that's a tough challenge. You know, we may have an excellent idea, like you said, or, you know, come up with a cool concept, but I mean, man, we've really, really through through testing, you know, through standardized testing, through our education, through the the systems in which we work, and our and maybe even our family systems. I mean, we've been trained to to keep quiet and to avoid rejection and avoid risk. And so, sharing creative ideas can feel like I'm opening myself up to vulnerability. This is a big risk. I'm going to be, you know, ridiculed. This could hurt how I'm viewed by my community, by my coworkers, whatever else. And so I completely understand why some folks are afraid to, to share that. I don't blame them. But I do think it's something that if we are aware of it and we work on it, we can fix it. Because I really believe that that everyone has important and powerful stories to tell and you never know who that story is going to touch and how it's going to make a difference in their life. And so we need to remove the barriers, as many barriers as possible, to make it possible for people to share those stories with confidence so that they can have the effect they need to have. I love that, Melanie. Well, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And for our listeners, you know, I want I want them to be able to, of course, follow you. <laughs> so so please tell them where they can find you online. Yes. So if you look for me, I'm Melanie Diesel, D-E-Z-I-E-L. You will find me on all of your your favorite social platforms. So search for me and you'll know it's me. I usually have bright red lipstick. And that's how you'll know it's me. I love that. And, you know, if you head to our website, storyfuel.co, so storyfuel.co, you can learn all about many of the things we talked about today. So there's a contact page there. If you just want a direct link to any of the social platforms, there's information about the book, about coaching, about consulting, about how to get set up with us for a, a webinar or a presentation or a training. So you'll, you'll find everything you need there on the website at storyfuel.co. I love it. I love it. And I just want to say too, I love the whole thing, right? The workbook, it's just such a great, it's great stuff. And while I know that COVID has kind of interrupted the flow for you, I have a feeling that you have an explosion coming in the area mm -hmm. of actually, I, I feel you working with more women in this way to get their powerful stories out. Because that's, I feel like that's what the world needs now. Yeah, I think I, I really believe that actually that's the dedication in my book is to all the stories waiting to be told and the storytellers oh, ready to tell them. So I think, I, I mean, hopefully you find yourselves there. But yeah, if you if you do want to check out the book, it's called The Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. And you can get that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, wherever you order books. Awesome. Well, well, we'll hopefully have another session soon, Melanie, and more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.